0: everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Ty Harris, CEO and co-founder of Openly. Openly uses technology to provide reimagined and beautifully simple home insurance. The company is growing rapidly towards its goal of being a leading national provider of personal insurance. Before founding Openly in 2017, Ty spent 12 years at Liberty Mutual, a top five global insurer, where he was most recently EVP and Chief Product and Underwriting Officer. Tai received his AB from Duke University, studied Graduate Economics at MIT, and is a Fellow of the Casualty Actuarial Society. In today's episode, Tai and I discuss his early career, inefficiencies in the current insurance process and how that led him to start Openly, and Openly's expansion strategy. Tai was fantastic in today's episode. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Ty, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Really uh, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Before we talk about your career and your time at Openly, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit about your time as a student. Uh, you spent a number of years as an economics student at MIT. Can you tell us a bit more about that and the transition to insurance? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I actually spent
1: quite <laughs> more years than I should have as a student. I uh, went to Duke undergrad and studied a bunch of stuff, very kind of broad education there, did economics. Um, as my major. Coming out of there, I spent a couple of years at the Brookings Institution in DC, working as uh, sort of like a research assistant in economic studies there. It was a great, great time. And then went from there into a PhD program in, in economics at MIT, as you said. And I yeah, was concentrating in very theoretical finance. So I was doing like market microstructure, how information is propagated in financial markets. It's, <laughs> it's been a fair bit of time there, going through lots of great friends, great classwork. In the end, decided that. The academic route was not right for me and, and popped across town to a more corporate job. But yeah, it was a good time.
0: Nice. And as you mentioned, after MIT, you were at Liberty Mutual for a few years, 10 years, I think, or maybe even more than that. And then eventually got into the chief product officer role. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how that helped you become a successful founder and entrepreneur afterwards?
1: Yeah. Well, look, as a, as a person studying finance, and you know, I was really interested in how people make decisions under uncertainty. And and I was also a poker player. So I was like, oh, I could go and work in Vegas and a casino or something. That's interesting. And I'm like, oh, the other place people think about risk carefully is insurance companies. Obviously, there's a lot of other places they do that. But Liberty Mutual was really close by. It was right across the river for me at the time. So I went over there and was started as a beginning actuarial student. So that was kind of the quantitative weight in the door at the time. So I did that it started building pricing models and underwriting models for homeowners insurance and auto insurance, and took on increasing management responsibility over time. And, and as you said, I was there for almost 13 years. At the end of that time, I was the chief product and underwriting officer for personal lines for for Liberty globally. But really, I think a couple of things that set me up well for what I'm doing now. Uh, one is I really do believe in being immersed in the problem that you're you're going to solve, or at least having some subject matter expertise. I mean, you don't want to be so glued into it that you can't see new ways of solving the problem, but it is also important to make sure you have a real problem. And so, you know, I maybe I over-indexed with 13 years, but certainly I got that. And then it's also, even though I'd done a lot of academic stuff at the time, I didn't have any managerial experience or even any, I'd never been in an MBA class. I didn't have any sense that like companies were more than, more complicated than point particles in some sense. And so that were like optimizing. And so the whole idea of how to manage and motivate people and get things done in a big, messy collaboration of other humans was something that at Liberty of being a 50,000 person company was just great at, obviously had to develop. And so really got that development from just square one or ground zero as a beginning manager there, which was just awesome.
0: Would you say you always had an itch to, be able to become a founder and an entrepreneur, or was it more of a moment of inspiration that uh, you saw and I, you saw a problem that you thought you could solve better by working with uh, openly?
1: Well, all my life, I am the kind of person who will see, I love building myself or something up from nothing. And in many cases in my life, that would take the form of a hobby. So I'd say, oh, I'm going to go be a good runner. And then I just go crazy about it. You know, I'd, I'd run... You know more than an amateur runner should, and just, you know up to a point. Or ballroom dancing—I got into that. It's a, it's a squirrely competitive sport, like in you know division 18 or whatever. But I, but I did that for a while and got very very serious about that. But I've always had those kinds of like, or maybe it's some coding projects. I've always had what I now, in retrospect, see were sort of entrepreneurial leaning hobbies. But in my Growing up, I had an amazing support system with my parents, and obviously, too, because an amazing school and everything. But I, for all the things I was exposed to, it was a little bit less on the. I didn't have a lot of examples of entrepreneurs just around me while I was in college or you know growing up. So it wasn't something I really realized that that was the way to take this way of behaving in a hobby and, and do that for your work. <laughs> I think I probably realized that partway through my Liberty career. I said, "Wait a second, I could do this." On my own, but it was terrifying. It took me a while to build a confidence to know that I could actually go out and do it myself.
0: Yeah. And I want to jump into openly in a second, but first, just a little bit about Boston. You spent the majority of your student life and professional career there. Can you just describe how you saw the tech scene and the fintech scene evolve uh, during your time there?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I saw when I first moved to Boston, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And then, you know, like I said, I went to school at Duke. And so when I first was in Boston, there was a lot of culture shock there. I remember literally the stupid stuff. Like when I was first went there, you could not order a pizza after like, I don't know, 10 PM or something grocery stores would close. It was just not, it felt like a not modern city. And I really did see it greatly modernized just on the ordinary conveniences of life over the time that I was there. And I think, you know, the foods, you know, so I think everything, I don't know if cultural is the right word, but just convenience wise, it became a much better city in my personal opinion. Overall, I'm a pretty late comer to the entrepreneurial scene. So it's vibrant now. I mean, we went through the TechStars program in 2018 with our company, and that was just amazing. It really opened my eyes to the community there. I mean, all sorts of verticals, right? I mean, there's great consumer presence there, but you know, really burgeoning fintech and there's an suretech scene there that's actually become quite strong. But I don't have the perspective to tell you what it was like in 2005, just because my eyes weren't as open to that. I was such a academic and big corporate person, and I, I wasn't. My eyes weren't open to the entrepreneurial scene there, but.
0: Fantastic. So let's switch to talking about it openly. Can you tell us a bit about the origin story for the company? How did you and Matt come to meet and decide that this was the right move?
1: Yeah, well, so Matt is my co-founder and CTO, and he's an amazing person. We met through our wives who were actually friends as undergrads at MIT. So that we were kind of in the same circles and we'd be on you know a trip together, or, but we never lived in the same city. So we, were, we never spent just tons of time together, but we got to know each other over years. And we would always invariably kind of talk about business and ideas. And he's like a technology trained person with lots of business ideas, and I'm a you know business economic trained person, but I also code on the side. You know, so we had a lot of overlap in our hobbies and things we talk about and ideas. And I think he realized earlier than I that he could make the leap. He was at Goldman Sachs and then jumped out of that and did a couple of um, startups. One of them actually insurance related before we founded openly. But then I we kept talking, and I, I felt like I had the comfort and the confidence to take the leap. But, you know, you asked if it was more me just always wanting to be an entrepreneur, whether there was something we saw there, but, and I talked about the entrepreneur part, but there really is also something we saw there. So when I, early days in my insurance career, I I realized that the industry is full of amazing intentions and just great people. And there's no There's no vertical of people I'd rather, you know, work with, but I will say that just as an institution or as an industry, insurance is not where it should be. I think the the way that this At the highest level manifest, you see about 40% of the money that consumers pay every year ends up going toward expenses, either like general administrative marketing, claims, handling expenses, whatever, but it's not being paid back in the form of claims dollars and it's not profit. So that's too much, right? For what fundamentally is a finance, like an investment product in a way you could think of it, 40% expense load, that's nuts. And despite all that spending, you also see consumers not always getting what they paid for. So people have legitimate life-altering coverage gaps that they get surprised by. So it's not like the product is knocking out of the park. It's too expensive. And so my view of insurance is that it needs to be less surprising and, and gotcha in the moment of claims, but it also needs to be a lot more efficient. Fundamentally, it needs to, I hate to say this about something that I love, but it does need to commoditize a bit and be seen as something that where customers want to pay for efficiency, They don't want to pay more than is warranted by an efficient industry. So the vision of Openly is to slowly bend the curve of the industry toward a much more efficient model. And the way we're starting off doing that is by, you know, this beautiful insurance product, which we're offering through independent agents, which we, I can talk more about why we believe in that channel, but, but that's kind of the initial vision is have this beautifully simple insurance that we sell through these independent retail agents.
0: And just for those people that are unaware uh, what use case is openly solving for its clients right now and you did mention uh it's what the use case you're starting with so if there's yeah. ideas for product expansion feel free to expand on those
1: yeah so right now we have a single family homeowner's insurance product so if you on a single family home in the suburbs or um maybe you use it yourself or you rent it to others or it's a secondary home we have an amazing insurance product for you and it's great in that it's got some coverage enhancements where you know like we uniquely in the industry don't make you guess what it would cost if your house burned down. We just cover every house up to $5 million. We offer a bindable quote with three questions in about eight seconds, so a name, date of birth, and address. We're able to offer a quote you could buy in, on like up to a $3 million house. And then behind the scenes, we have algorithms that are bespoke and built to us and back-tested to be able to better predict risk based on you know just those initial consumer-entered questions. We're able to actually better predict risk than the existing industry models today. So we do all of that. You know, It's better coverage. It's super, super fast. It's more efficient with the consumer's money, but better predicts risk. And the last, I guess, pillar of it is that we we don't spend our money marketing direct to consumers. We offer it through these existing retail channels, which are set up today. And a lot of times these, these independent agents who are selling insurance today, they're dealing with products made by carriers that might be 100, 200-year-old mutual, co- regional mutual company that Is great in many ways, but what's not great is they're spending on technology or algorithms or new products. And so we're able to bring a much more modernized product to this great existing channel
0: and it's winning so far. Got it. And let's talk about your relationship with the independent agents. How does that differ from traditional insurance providers and what advantage do you think that gives you? Yeah, I mean, today
1: insurance is sold in, you can parse it up in different ways, but one way to parse it up is to say either the person or the website selling the insurance to the end consumer. Is directly tied to the producer of that to the company that's you know making that insurance. So, like a State Farm would be the, you know the biggest insurer in the U.S. They sell through their own captive agents who only generally sell State Farm to the extent they have a website. It's only site State Farm. You know, the other model is where you are actually breaking the value chain in a sense. You're cutting distribution separate from the actual manufacturing of the insurance. So we work with that kind. And that's about maybe 40% of homeowners insurance in the U.S. is sold the way that we're doing it. The other 60% is sold somehow tied to the carrier. Either it's sold online, not much is sold online today, or it's sold through a captive agent. But in our model, we work with an independent agent who, it could be a small business with one or two or three employees. It could be a giant countrywide call center. It could be a digital independent agency, which is really a rapidly growing Kayak of insurance could be an agency we sell through, but either way, it's someone who is retailing insurance and they typically sell the insurance. They sell our product, but we're also competing within that agency against other carriers. They might have eight carriers they work with. They might work with openly, but also with Travelers and Safeco and Cincinnati. And there's literally hundreds of other, mostly regional carriers out there competing to sell through these agencies. And so we're really bumping up against those competitors to win business within these independent agencies.
0: Got it. And you mentioned openly looking for efficiencies in the underwriting process besides for you know claims losses. How have you approached uh, developing the company from the bottom up? How have you approached your tech stack to make that possible?
1: It is solving for the waste and the speed and the efficiency of insurance is partly a technology problem and it's partly an insurance problem. So some of the things we've had to do are change the actual way the coverage works To make the experience simpler it's not something that technology could have solved so you know for example that i talked a moment ago about insuring every home up to five million dollars no matter how big or small the home and that in itself suddenly changes the experience in a way that no technology could because now you're taking the risk of like underestimating the value of the home which before was this massive risk that led to a massive waste of time process where the consumer was talking their loan provider and their insurance Agent and the insurance company, and the you know, some inspector might come out and they're all arguing about what should be the limit on this house. We just get rid of that whole nonsense, both at time of underwriting and at time of claim, where they're covered, there's no gotcha waiting for them. And that took an insurance change, but there's also a lot of other changes which you can solve through technology. So, gathering data at time of underwriting, you know, we ask three questions name, date of birth, and address. But we leverage that to then go get hundreds of pieces of information from all the both free and proprietary and cached and private, you know, all these APIs and other sources of information about the house, the consumer, the location. A lot of the IP we built is going out to get that, clean it, reconcile the different sources, put it through within our proprietary models, which are able to make risk decisions very quickly. And all of that, getting to that final decision about the price and the eligibility and the commission and all that in five seconds, eight seconds. That is a lot of what we built. And that's required almost entirely bespoke technology. So we haven't basically built everything from scratch, except for a few, you know, we don't, we didn't build our own like payment system. But
0: other than that, got it. Very impressive. And I know openly has a remote first uh, delivery model. Can you talk about how you made that decision and what advantages you've seen with that?
1: Yeah. You know, early in the company, pre-COVID, we were probably, I don't know, 15 people when, when COVID hit. And even at that point, we did have a, more people in Boston than anywhere else, which is kind of where we grew up but we were already leaning remote first and our technology team, I think importantly, was kind of remote first. And we made that decision really based on just the availability of talent. I mean, the ability to not have to compete in one tiny geographic market or two and acquire talent just made it, you know, not even much of a choice for us. I would say COVID made us really scratch our heads and say, well, how far can we push this? Can we push every function to be this? And I think with some exceptions, the answer is yes. I think I've been at a company where like, half the people on a team might be in one office and then the other half are all remote. And that's tougher because in that case, you really do create these two classes of citizens, if you will. Whereas I think when you're remote first and remote is sort of the default, even if you have, you know, you might have 20% of the people come into an office, but I feel like that creates a much more level playing field where people feel like they can advance their career even if they're remote. So primarily for talent, COVID made that obviously the also the, the convenient decision. We're now up to about 70 people. And so our company, by the time... Well, who knows? I won't try and predict when COVID. will we'll be back to normal COVID-wise, but I would guess we'll be a 150-person company when that happens. And so we will have grown essentially the entire company through that period. So that's another
0: reason we're remote. A number of fintech verticals saw an increase in demand during COVID uh, for the remote-only delivery model. Would you say InsurTech and, and openly saw a similar increase in demand? Yeah, it's the current
1: area of insurance that we're in right now. Home insurance is somewhat dependent on the real estate cycle. I mean, probably 30% of our sales come because a house is turning over. So, you know, if if real estate completely stopped turning over, it's not like we wouldn't lose all our sales, but it can be a headwind or a tailwind. And I was worried at the very beginning of what this would do to us. I didn't know what was going to happen to real estate. What we realized is that our segment, the single family home, (laughs) and especially in like vacation areas or suburbs is really just going gangbusters right now. And so, We feel like we're, if anything, we have a little bit of a a tailwind on that angle. The other piece of it, though, is that, yeah, a lot of insurance companies, parts of their delivery model does depend on in-person stuff. So someone goes to inspect the house in person or, or there's a claim, someone has to go out and look in person. And because we've been able to build or this paper that people are shuffling in some operations center, and because we've been able to build more digitally, and also make choices about, well, let's just not even have an in-person inspection. Let's have people you know, use their smartphone to go take pictures of their house. And that's how we'll do an inspection. To be able to make those types of choices, we'd probably just push the needle even further during COVID. But I do feel like we've been advantaged having the ability to develop those digital solutions
0: given the, where the company was. Yeah, you may have been worried when COVID started, but the numbers suggest you had a very successful 2020. So you raised your series A and your series B in 2020, the latter being $40 million. How would you say you've handled the rapid growth of the company? How has your role changed as the company has gotten bigger?
1: Yeah, it's funny. So I went from managing a large organization at my you know corporate employer. I was managing uh 800 person teamish, and that going from that to at openly, I actually wrote some. I'm mean, I'm not a professional programmer, but I wrote some of our early code around you know our rating model and things like that. Like just because we needed hands on deck, and we we're just you know it was two of us, and then three of us, and so I, I did a lot of individual work and. Just now, just over the last, I would say four or six months, we've been getting to the point where, all right, we're now putting in place like a more complete and robust executive team. So it's it's gone a lot back more toward caring about talent, which was probably ninety nine percent of my role and my old job it was like it was all about talent. It's like building the team and like who's gonna do what and how are we developing who for what. And then my job went to like zero percent about that for a little while. It was all about like doing stuff myself. And now it's it's back, not quite. Not quite where it was before, but a lot of my days are spent thinking about talent and about the org and the and the team for sure, which is fun. It's exciting. It's good to get back to that. And it's nice having enough money that we can actually. Not everyone is willing to take the risk when you're you you can not pay them almost anything. Whereas you got you're dealing with a much bigger field of people and you can pay them a a, nor, a more normal salary, I guess.
0: What is your general approach approach to talent acquisition?
1: In terms of like the what we hire for, I think we have certain. I'll call it cultural. I mean, that's a loaded word, but like certain core values of the company around, you know, certain things that every company would I hope that every company prioritizes integrity, for example, but to us, that's super important. You know, curiosity is very, very important to us. So someone who uh, pulls on the string and, and that can happen at any job level. It can be, you know, frontline person who's working with agents on the phone every day. And they ask, but why do we do it this way? Why don't we do it this way? And we want that kind of questioning and rather than just kind of rotely doing something, but all the way up through strategy executive, of course, you want that. Um, But at every role, we want that at the right level. So just justify from first principles thinking, why are we doing it this way? And then teamwork is a completely kind of trite word. But to us, what that means is very important to us. What it means is not ever defending your silo of the company, but instead always looking out for the good of the company. So if you're the salesperson and you come to the meeting and say, well, I really think we should do this deal because we're going to sell more next month. You say, well, Does that add profit? Does that add value? Does that, well, no, but we're going to sell more. I mean, that is completely unacceptable. And especially at bigger companies, you can get to the point where people do see their responsibility as like defending their silo or their, which is just the worst crime to me in a company is to do that. So that's kind of what we look for. And then we, of course, we look for specific attributes appropriate to the function. And yeah, we have a small internal talent team. We work with some outside uh, recruiters. We network ourselves. I mean, that's a big part of it is like our company is about half technology. And a lot of those folks do not have insurance experience and about half people with insurance experience. And so we're able to go out, they're different networks, but go after those folks through
0: our networks as well. And from the outside looking in, it seems like Openly has expanded geographically in a very deliberate manner going state by state. What is your expansion strategy and where do you see the company going over the next few years? Our general levers of expansion are indeed geography.
1: So we're in eight states right now. We will be in you know if not fifty, then probably forty-eight states. Eventually, we'll be in about twenty states into this year. So that's one lever. We have agents. So because we sell, you know, bring on board these independent agents who then sell the customers. as this intermediate sale to the agents, and we have lots of room to run there as well. You know, we have low single-digit thousands of agencies working for us, and there's probably forty thousand in the U.S. that we can get to. There's product expansion, so not really this year, maybe not even next year, but um, in the next two or three years, we will likely introduce other products and auto insurance product being a likely addition there. There's other there's other levers as well, depth of expansion, depth of you know within agencies and things. But in terms of the geography we've picked so far for our initial states, part of it is regulatory. There's insurance in the US is regulated at the state level. And so there's a lot of factors that go into choosing which jurisdictions you can get into quickly. And it's not always the biggest, states. In fact, it's a little bit negatively correlated with the biggest states. It's easier sometimes to get into the smaller states. It's also the industry profitability. You want to be in states where the industry is kind of rationally pricing. It's easier in a product like ours where you can face adverse selection. And then you want to be diversified. So you don't want to write 50% of your business on Miami Beach. You know, I love Miami Beach, but that you, know, you don't want one big hurricane or any sort of event to be able to take out a lot of the capital. Um, And even though we're reinsured by global reinsurers, they also want us to be diversified so that the ratio of the the business we're bringing them, the the revenue to the capital strain it puts on them is is lower. So that's a big consideration too.
0: And zooming out for a second, uh, what major changes do you expect to see with an insure tech over the next five to 10 years?
1: I think a big theme that I just expect to see in the insurance market in general is increasing what I'll call retail transparency. So if you look to the uk or spain or some other developed non-us insurance markets that are often sometimes less regulated on is part of the reason i think that you will have like successful kayaks of insurance that everyone uses not just a small portion of the population and you'll have you know brokers that have dozens of prices they can give you so i just expect not only the transparency in the kind of way you would think of as a, a kayak of insurance, I expect non-traditional retail channels to emerge, probably selling insurance through OnStar, maybe through Amazon, through, you know, kind of generally embedded at the per, at the moment of purchase. So I just think you're gonna see a really interesting explosion of channels that are offering insurance to consumers at the moment that is appropriate when it's on the consumer's mind to buy. And then you pull on that a little bit and you say, well, what is that? retail layer need. Oh, it needs insurance carriers. And this is kind of our play insurance carriers that are really good at selling in a transparent choice environment that are really fast. You don't have to answer a thousand questions. They have a highly algorithmic and fast and accurate risk assessment price so that they don't face adverse selection. They have low expense ratio. And so that's sort of where we're trying to play. We're trying to be ready to plug into all these emerging retail channels over time.
0: And what about in the fintech industry as a whole? Any particular trends that excite you?
1: Yeah, well, I um, I love the idea of bringing new capital sources to bear on to uses where that, that pool of capital previously couldn't play. So, you know, something like I'll pick Lending Club, even though I know it's changed over time, but that's one of the, you know, it's kind of a somewhat early model of, hey, let's see if we can bring capital from small investors to actually lend to people. Now, again, I know the, that model's changed, but you look at now what's happening with like you know, fractional vacation homes and like buying you know sneakers online and buying you know you can you can like bid on portions of art and watches i just i just love these like marketplaces that are allowing non-traditional capital to play and we're we're doing a little bit of that ourselves as well you know i think over time we will part of openly's mission is to continuously allow to be pushing the envelope in terms of the type of capital that can take insurance risk and i don't know exactly where that heads but that's probably you know i named a few Areas for expansion for our company, states and you know, agency obvious ones. I think there's also an area which is broadening the pools of capital which can take insurance risk through openly as a, as a sort of platform, which we'd be excited about. I'm also just personally, this isn't me speaking as openly, but I'm very excited about sort of decentralized stuff. I feel like we're in a moment when. The, the level of sort of distrust of large things in the US, you know, 10 years ago was more theoretical. And, you know, there's people who would say, well, we need Bitcoin because we don't trust whatever you don't trust. The government, the big tech company, you know. And I think now, like there's I mean, for whatever reason, we're in this moment when there's a more palpable and practical questioning of big institutions, which makes it kind of an exciting moment for decentralized and, and more robust things of, of all of all stripes. But again, that's just that's my personal kind of hobby interest more than me
0: speaking as openly fantastic and as a student i definitely appreciate the role that non-traditional capital is playing lately in fintech yeah <laughs> all right so now entering the final section of the podcast my favorite section uh, rapid fire round uh, we'd like to keep our answers here around 10 seconds or less you ready to go oh boy i'll try you're going to do great all right favorite us city well, I gotta say Charleston right
1: now because that's where I moved and I, I'm, I'm loving Charleston. Last show you binge watched? Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. <laughs> I have two little kids. They, uh, I watch it every night for 25 minutes. And if I didn't, I would be, uh, there would not be a bedtime. <laughs> nice. How about you picked up during the pandemic? Uh, mostly eating bacon. No, I'm a, I'm a big runner. Um, and so I
0: would just say that I took running to a new level during the pandemic. It's convenient. Awesome. Our favorite vacation you've ever been on?
1: Oh, ever vacation. I would say, um, sort of semester abroad in Australia when I was in college and nothing compares with that. And some of the sub trips
0: I took there. And you can take a little bit longer on this one, but advice you would have given your 20 year old self knowing what you know now,
1: uh, wear more sunscreen. No, I'm kidding. That's it. I think, um, I think be bolder and more confident. You know, I was talking earlier about having entrepreneurial hobbies, but not being an entrepreneurial in my business life until quite recently, and I. I think I wish in some ways that I had earlier recognized that this connection of like, you know, you, Ty, really like to pick something up and pursue it to, you'll do it all day and all night and spin on, you know, and pursue it to its logical extreme for years. I wish I had made the connection earlier in my life that you, given that predilection, that desire, you could be an entrepreneur in the business world and rely on that or take a leap to rely on that for your actual income earlier in my life. Not a big regret,
0: but I, I kind of wish I knew that. So I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. Anything you want to talk about that we didn't get to touch on during the first 30 minutes of this?
1: No, well, I will just say that it's for folks who haven't started a business out there, I just say one of the greatest pleasures is building this amazing team. Like I said, we're up to 65 people and it just, it amazes me. It takes my breath away. The leap of faith that our team is taking by joining openly at such an early stage and people would have this much faith in this mission that we're doing. So for people who are, maybe considering entrepreneurship. I just don't, don't underestimate the feeling of value that that can bring to your life. It's sort of like, I I, I mean, I love my kids more than anything, but I'd say it is it's a, in some ways a business analogous to having kids and that it's just very rewarding. And I appreciate that so much every day. And I also appreciate the opportunity to be here. So thanks for letting me come and talk
0: to you. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming here today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and congratulations to everything that you and openly have accomplished recently. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.